Yeah. Are we ready? I, yeah, I'm excited. Um, there's a lot of learning that's going to happen, so let's do this thing. Great. Yeah, absolutely. So welcome to the Hot Isle. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Brett Piotti, and with me as always... Brian Carpenter. Brian, how are you, buddy? Where are you at today? I'm doing great. And um, so I actually, for this podcast, I wanted to make sure it was really like, we wanted some data locality. So I actually headed out to San Francisco to sit in the same city as our guest, just so that this felt had a little, you know, a little bit of a regional flair. Absolutely. You want to keep those ingress and egress costs down. Yeah. I hear you. Well, awesome. So the goal of the show today, let's dig into using advanced analytics and machine learning to take data from being just a liability and something you have to spend money on and cool down and takes up space and turn it into an asset. So with us today, we have Stephen Hillian from Alpine Data Labs. Uh, Stephen is the co-founder and chief product officer there. So Stephen, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm great. How are you guys? Doing fantastic. I heard you had a good uh, uh, workout in the rain here in San Francisco <laughs> today. Yeah, finally the rain has started out here and um, I found myself lifting uh, 60 pound weights over my head this morning in the pouring rain. Um, so wow. that was pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good way to keep you cool. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Was, Steven, uh, fun. Steven, so tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, what you do day to day at Alpine data labs. Uh, so I co-founded the company, um, and really my responsibility for the first few years was building out the product and sort of putting into uh, material form, a vision I had around um, really two things, making advanced analytics accessible to um, as many people as possible. Um, and we can talk about what that means maybe later. Um, and also making it easier for data scientists and analysts and uh, engineers to talk to one another uh, and share the practice and the product of, of doing analytics. So, so that was sort of the idea. We, we built a product, a platform around that. Um, the last few years, um, as the company has grown and gained uh, real customers, I've focused on the actual data science practice. So I have a small team of data scientists, and we help our customers get up and running and, and using the platform and making discoveries and, and putting analytics into practice. So I'm, I'm sort of Playing, I've played this dual role of uh, you know product guy and then data science guy. Now I have people to take care of the product for me, and I'm I'm getting deep into the data science, which is a lot of fun. Right on. And so, tell us about your background. What brought you here? Got you interested in in analytics? Yeah. Um, originally, I was actually a mathematician. Um, I studied in England and got my degree there. And I'd asked my advisor, um, you know, where should I? where should I do my PhD, thinking that he'd maybe say, well, stick around at Oxford or go to Cambridge or something. He said, go west, young man. He said, go to Berkeley, uh, because Berkeley is where it's at mathematically, and it's a beautiful place to live, and uh, there was better funding there. And, uh, you know, America was just the place to be in terms of research institutions. I think it still is. Um, and so I, I spent a few years in Berkeley getting my degree. And then I was wondering what to do, and a friend of mine said, hey, you should come and work in Silicon Valley, that way you don't have to leave the beautiful Bay Area, and you can still do mathy type stuff, um, but the, the weather's better than going and teaching calculus, weather and money is better than going and teaching calculus in upstate New York or something. So, um, so that's what I did. I, I moved into actually CRM software. I found myself uh, at Siebel eventually, just before it got uh, snapped up by Oracle. Um, and then did a couple more sort of enterprise CRM gigs, but found that I was drifting too far from my math route. So I was like, how can I do something 
that's more associated with mathematics in the world of business. And of course, that was analytics. Before, really, it was called data science. And before there was big data, um, this was really just about the time that, say, Google and Yahoo and, and those folks were starting to uh, chomp through their log files with technologies like Hadoop. But I was still focused on sort of traditional uh, analytics, um, predictive analytics, uh, mostly in the retail space. Um, so that's that's how I sort of arrived at analytics and software is sort of like sort of motivated by my math background. Sure. And it looks like you have a couple patents out there. When uh, when did you create those and, and what was that kind of impetus behind it? Well, that was, um, gosh, we're going back in time now. I'm going to have to remember that. It's like, I'm just grateful you didn't ask me what my PhD was about. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, actually this, the next question. <laughs> and this podcast has now ended. Um, so, no, I, um, I was working at a, my first startup uh, that I was sort of directly involved in founding, uh, focused on retail analytics. We were working with companies like Coca-Cola and Danon and uh, Ocean Spray and uh, uh, General Mills and so on to do things like pricing analytics and marketing mix analytics where you try to figure out, you know, where should I spend my advertising dollars and my marketing dollars generally, um, as well as sort of trade dollars, you know, like discounts in the supermarket, that sort of thing. And that's a pretty complicated problem because you can look at um, how much you're selling and you can try and correlate that with your marketing activities and say, well, look, we lowered the price uh, in the Northern California region uh, and saw an increase in sales volume. Uh, but the problem is, at the same time you were doing that, you were probably also rolling out a, a big TV campaign across the, the West. And you might also have been uh, uh, seeing competitive pressures reduce uh, from a competitor who is maybe pulling out of that market. So how do you uh, attribute that increase in sales volume to those different effects. Um, and that's a classic case of regression. Uh, regression being sort of, the, you know, a, a sort of generalization of, of simple correlations. You know, how does this one factor depend on another? Well, regression is about how, how does this one factor depend on a, an array of factors? And that really, that's what that company was was focused on doing. It was called M-Factor. It was ultimately acquired by Demantec and then IBM. Um, and so... Um, the patents were about how do you how do you not only tease apart the effects of sales volume in terms of contributing factors like price and advertising and competitor pressures and so on, um, but how do you uh, do that in such a way that you can also attribute changes in your profit uh, and prof and changes in your revenue, and how do you do that when these factors have um, uh, interactions with each other. You know, if you lower the price at the same time that you're doing an advertising campaign, you may get a, a, a larger increase in volume than if you'd done them separately and then added those effects together. So um, that was really what those patents were about, is sort of teasing apart the contributing marketing effects on sales volume and on revenue and profit. And so did you did you go straight from it? Obviously, in your, in your past, you know, one of the things we saw was Green Plum. Uh, which both uh, you know Brett and I know quite well. Um, did you end up going straight from Greenplum into Alpine Data, and was there something that you learned in your tenure somewhere that kind of caused you and your co-founders to go, we see an acute problem and we see a way to help bridge that gap? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, both there and at, at, at the previous two companies, I had been working with teams of data scientists 
And um, I, I noticed two things that were slowing us down. Um, um, we, first of all, had the difficulty of just hiring data scientists who were skilled in the methods of, of advanced analytics and, and statistics um, in any quantity. Um, you know, you're in the Bay Area, uh, and so there's a lot of competition from uh, the big um, uh, online companies like Google and LinkedIn and, and Netflix and so on. Um, and even if you're not in the Bay Area, you know, you have fewer people maybe to select from because everybody's sort of congregating around these, these big companies. So it's just very difficult to recruit people. And so what we wanted to do is maybe hire people who didn't have a formal training in, in analytics. That didn't even really exist back in, you know, 2008, 2010. Um, but maybe had sort of a background in the physical sciences or uh, bioinformatics or in economics um, or, or uh, um, uh, mathematics. Um, but that meant that then we needed to have technologies that they could use that didn't require a lot of ramp up time because we wanted to push these folks out to work with our customers as quickly as possible, right? You know, time is money. We didn't have a lot of time to train them. Um, so that was uh, that was one thing, and eventually, you know, we actually grew the team to to forty people, a really amazing team of data scientists. So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the secret of that in a second, uh, and uh, well, I'll give you a clue. It was Alpine. Um, the other <laughs> the problem that we were facing was that you know, as this team grew, um, and I had to manage uh, a team of, uh, or, or rather, you know, my head of data science, uh, Annika Jimenez. Uh, as she wanted to manage a, manage this larger team across the globe, really, we had folks in in Asia, we had folks in uh, Australia, we had uh, people in America and Europe. Um, uh, how do we actually manage them, get them to benefit from each other's knowledge, to share the findings that they have, to ask questions of each other, um, uh, build things together, and so on. So those are the two problems. How do I make analytics easier, in a nutshell, and uh, how do we increase collaboration? And um, that was really the genesis then of Alpine. We thought, well, look, um, we can start creating tools around this. We actually kicked off some, some uh, open source projects when we were at Greenplum uh, aimed at solving uh, some of these problems, in particular Madlib, which was uh, this open source project. We'll maybe talk about that in a second. But um, uh, really, we thought this, this needs a product. This needs a platform um, that is collaborative and that is easy to use. And that was the, the genesis of the idea of, of Alpine. That's awesome. And so, you know, as one of the things that we noticed was, uh, you know, I'd like to see your feedback on it is uh, McKinsey mentioned in, in an article recently that uh, 2018, they see something like a 250,000 person deficit in data mm. scientists, right? So mm. that problem mm. of hiring data scientists isn't getting easier. It seems to be getting no. harder. It, it is getting harder. And, um, you know, Alpine's a small company. And uh, we've been able to attract people because I think we're doing cool stuff and we have a great team and we're, you know, located in a great area and all that stuff. But even so, we find really intense pressure and competition for the people that we're trying to hire in terms of salaries, people being uh, stolen away at the last minute, just as we think we've gotten them. And uh, it's just really, really tough. It's been tough now for the last six years, even longer. Um, so... Uh, I, I, I don't doubt that McKinsey statistic. Um, I, I wonder sometimes what is the definition of a data scientist and what all these folks are doing. So another thing we can discuss, you know, I think there's a little bit of title inflation around this, but that being said, there, there is no doubt that there is great demand right now from all sorts of companies, not just the, the, the big folks that I've mentioned, but um, the 
the Fortune 1000 companies, the banks out on the East Coast, um, retailers in the Midwest, um, oil manufacturing companies, entertainment companies, they're all looking for data scientists who can chomp through different types of vast quantities of data. And, and they're just very difficult to find. And that's why you see you know, these academies um, um, uh, shooting up um, so that people can learn um, in a sort of abbreviated setting uh, how to do data science. And that's why you're seeing a lot of internships being offered. Um, and now, of course, you're seeing master's programs from uh, North Carolina State, from Berkeley, uh, Northwestern, all over the place uh, that are shooting up. And do you feel like it's simple to define what a data scientist is, or are there are there tiers of, of what, uh, I guess, what science you're practicing? Does there end up being like a categorization of data scientists? There's certain ones doing certain types of the kind of end-to-end science story? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's right, actually, to be generous with the definition of, of what a data scientist is. Um, and in that sense, I would say it's anybody who's using um, statistics and mathematics and technology um, to summarize findings from data and convert that into insights and into actions. Um, typically in a business setting. Um, so that, that's sort of broadly how I define it. And so in that sense, people who have been working with tools like Tableau and Excel um, and um, uh, Spotfire and all these sort of traditional um, uh, business reporting solutions um, have been data scientists for a long time. Um, I think, however, uh, when people generally speak colloquially of data scientists, what they mean is people who are using statistics and machine learning methods, uh, more advanced methods than um, uh, traditional BI, uh, to get deeper insights uh, and more actionability from the data. I I think that's really what people mean by by data scientist. It's an odd term, by the way, you know, I was thinking about this the other day that, you know, in a sense, anybody who's a scientist is a data scientist <laughs> because almost by definition, almost by definition, a scientist who conducts experiments, gathers data, and then analyzes that data is being a data scientist. Um, I think really what people, a better term would be something like business scientist or business analyst. It's the term that people have always used, um, but no, we needed something fancier, so that's okay. And, and so you started this thing uh, in roughly 2010. You've obviously got some, uh, you had some kind of key elements that you were looking to do. Um, what did you, I mean, you, you could tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. What did you set out to do in 2010 and kind of how has that all evolved? And, and you know, let's, let's dig into a little bit about what Alpine Data is doing to, to solve this kind of gap and, and, you know, and bridge it. Yeah, right. So um, I mentioned those two major areas earlier around collaboration, around making it easy. Um, there's perhaps a third one that I should mention, which is in the process of trying to make it easy, um, you're not just talking about making the math easy, but also dealing with all the different technologies. You know, you've got the rise of big data, and what that really means is technologies like Hadoop and NoSQL databases and big parallel databases. And, you know, if the data scientist is already struggling to learn all these new methods and maybe learn a little Python as well or learning R, um, telling them that in addition they have to write MapReduce jobs or learn Spark or uh, write complex SQL, that, that's a tall order, uh, especially when you also can't find these people. So, um, 
So let's focus on that one, you know, the making it easier. So what we did is we said, um, what's, so what's been proven time and time again as a way of making sort of coding constructs and complex data structures easy to use? And often it's some sort of visual interface. Um, and uh, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to have a sort of drag drop interface that, allow, that would allow users to do real complex data science. It wouldn't dumb down the data science in that sense. Um, we wanted these people really to focus on the math, but would make it a lot easier uh, to ignore all the complexity of the underlying big data platforms and also ignore some of the complexities of the internals of the algorithms, right? If I know um, that uh, a logistic regression is really good at doing uh, classifications and is uh, easy to configure and I know what it means to model interaction parameters and I know how to control things like model accuracy, uh, sort of variance versus bias, I don't really need to understand matrix inversions um, and how to parallelize matrix inversions across a big cluster. There's just, I, I don't need that. I need to know what the control, if, you know, it's like driving a car. It's useful to have some idea of how engines work, but in general, when you drive a car, you're mostly focused on the steering wheel and the speedometer, you know? So, so that's what we wanted to do, is to create a, a, a surface layer, a visual surface layer for the analytics that gave you all the controls you needed, again, didn't dumb it down, but um, um, sort of hid away the complexities of the underlying platforms and, and parallelization of algorithms and so on. So what we ended up with then was this uh, visual workflow editor that, um, uh, that really hid the complexity of technologies like Hadoop and, and relational databases, uh, but had all the tools available to the data scientist uh, that they would need. So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing then was this collaborative platform. And so what we did is we said, well, look, you know, um, people have long had desktop tools for doing analytics. We think ours is easier and friendly and more scalable. Uh, you know, it's a whole new generation of software, but it, people also these days used to using very simple, straightforward applications for answering their email, for communicating with their friends, for sharing photographs, and so on. So we wanted something that borrowed a lot of those concepts from, um, say, social software, um, uh, from uh, the best of enterprise applications, uh, and allowed people to do things like share their workflows, share their data, uh, do version control over time without even thinking about it, add comments, search things easily, have a nice, simple, dynamic, web-based interface, all those sorts of things. And also, because it was centralized and web-based and sort of on a modern enterprise architecture, also allowed their bosses to make sure that they were controlling data visibility and that things were being checked into source control and all that sort of stuff. So kind of a control collaboration governance layer. Um, so that's that's really what we, uh, what we built. Really focused on the ease of use and scalability initially and then the collaborative stuff uh, after a couple of years. And is it tended to cover like uh, of the pipeline for analytics and you know machine learning and things like that? Is it intended to cover certain portions of it? Right, like there's there's obviously times where you have to do what is now the the kind of modern ETL where you have to kind of tag the data and make it make yeah. sense again. Um, and obviously, then we start to do things like modeling and stuff like that. Does it does it does the tools stop at the point where you kind of set it out into production and start to do inference and even bring information back or uh, do the tools end up kind of managing that entire pipeline, including production? 
Yes. So that's a really interesting question because um, I often tell my um, my engineering and my product team that you know the holy grail really for analytics in the business world, um, uh, business in the broadest possible sense, including say government applications as well. There, um, the the holy grail is actually not the most accurate algorithm that can identify pictures of cats on the internet, right? That's important for certain companies, uh, and that's great, and it's very exciting uh, uh, what they're doing uh, in the business world and in the academic world around things like um, uh, neural networks and, and deep learning and so on. But the holy grail for everybody else, for the, for the average folks in the business world, is how do you take analytics and actually make that change the way that you do business, right? So... Um, so at the, at the far end of analytics, it's like, how do you operationalize things? And also one thing I'd observed, um, really over the last 15 years, since I started sort of getting more into analytics, uh, really since like 2000, 2003, 2004 is, uh, getting access to data, um, and cleaning that data and integrating across different data sources is actually probably the most difficult thing to do. The analytics, the point where you build an algorithm, that's the fun thing you do on a Friday afternoon and you get the result and you sort of show it to your friends and you go home. Um, but actually getting the data together and uh, making that accessible to people and integrating it, that's the challenge. It's a really boring challenge, uh, but it takes, in almost every case, 90% of the length of a data science project. So we try to cover all of those aspects from getting the data, integrating it, transforming it, cleansing it, modeling it, and pushing it into production. Uh, from from end to end, so we didn't do all of those things from the beginning, but we found those necessary to build, and so that's that's in the platform. So, Stephen, so you talked about this holy grail, right? How do I change the way I fundamentally do business with the use of of analytics and data? Not uh, your VP of engineering, Lawrence uh, Spracklin, is that how you say yeah, that, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so he recently wrote a, a an article talking about basically the the, the failed investments that. Um, that companies are making the data science teams, the tools, and things like that. And he says it's like uh, he used the term "the last mile of analytics." So, yeah. talk to us about that that last mile. Yeah. So, let's let's look at sort of the traditional world of doing uh, data science or predictive analytics. You might use something like R, say, the open source language, which is a, an amazing innovation um, and has been amazing innovation since it was created. I think what like uh, in the seventies now. I think 70s or 80s, um, and um, you know, sort of really transformed the speed and ease with which people could do analytics. Right? You need to be a, a programmer. R is not the, the most intuitive language uh, to learn and to use, but it but it still is very powerful. So let's look at how you would do analytics in a business world. Um, say, if you wanted to sort of model those sales volumes that I was talking about earlier. Well, you know, you'd race around for a while, and you'd get data from all these uh, from from your from your uh, maybe your Salesforce implementation, uh, you get it from your um, ERP application to get all the pricing information and, and sales information, maybe get some of your marketing stuff from Salesforce and Marketer. I mean, that's, you know, so that's a year. <laughs> now you've got your data. Um, and uh, then you start integrating that together, cleaning it and, and building your models. Um, as if that weren't difficult enough, you've now built a model that tells you um, you know, what your sales volumes are going to be in a given region and under certain conditions. Well, how do you actually deliver that now to your sales managers so that they can put in their assumptions and make a projection about what their, um, what their pipeline is likely to be for the next couple of quarters? Um, well, I kid you not, in the traditional world, 
When you've got a model that's built in something like R or Python or traditional solutions like SAS or so on, what you would do is you'd take a picture of that or copy paste it into an email, send it to your data engineers who will then spend a few weeks converting it into SQL or converting it into Java or coding it up in an Excel spreadsheet. And then they'll email that off to, to the sales managers. So that's crazy, right? Because now we've spent a year gathering the data together. And we've spent a month pushing the models out. It only took two days, by the way, to do the data science. Um, and oh, by the way, now your data is out of date and uh, the, the models are no longer relevant. Um, so, so that's not great. Plus, you know, it's prone to all sorts of errors. Um, now, technologies and, and standards have come along like PMML for being able to export models. Uh, but there's a lot of shortcomings with those that don't scale particularly well. They don't they cover mostly the encoding of models. They largely ignore the upstream um, data manipulation and variable creation, and normalization and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so it's still largely it's still largely been a, a, a manual process. Um, so that last mile that Lawrence is talking about is also the first mile, as uh, I think, with all of that data gathering that I was mentioning. But yes, this last mile. Uh, in terms of operationalizing things, we've we've attempted uh, and succeeded, I think, um, in building technologies that allow you to take workflows. Whether you know, we we now have the ability to build workflows as visually, or in Python, or in R, or in um, SQL. You can kind of mix and mix and match your your favorite technologies, and more or less at the click of a button, move that into a production setting or turn that into a real-time scoring engine. So that's what we've been really focused on for the last year or so is building up that innovation. Okay, great. And so you brought up the uh, PMML, the Predictive Model Markup Language. Uh, and I think you wrote a blog post recently about the PFA, the Portable Format for Analytics, and kind of the compare and contrast of those two. I think it was you. but I think um, that I th I'll give Lawrence credit for that one as well, actually. He does all the work, frankly. Uh, I, just, <laughs> I just show up for podcasts. <laughs> but can you, yeah, but can you explain the difference between those two and why why the shift? I think you know with your mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. your chorus product, I think you guys started to integrate with the PFA stuff. Uh, so just trying to understand why that's a why that's a benefit over the PMML. Yeah, yeah. So remember, I was saying um, that PMML uh, was very good at encapsulating what a model does. So in the case of that uh, regression that I was telling you about before. The, the, the PMML will essentially say, okay, what I, the model, am trying to predict here is sales volume, um, and that's a numeric quantity. And uh, in order to predict that, this is what I need to know. I need to know your levels of advertising. I need to know the price broken down by region. Um, and once I've gotten those, this is the math that I do to convert those into that numerical quantity to make that prediction. Um, and uh, so it encodes the inputs, the outputs, uh, and the calculation. Um, what it doesn't do so well is to say, well, if in the process of doing that, I need to join together the data that I had on my marketing activities um, for a given product with the price for that product using the product key, uh, or if I need to normalize the price um, because different products have different prices and I want to have those within a standard range um, uh, or convert them sort of like a, 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 a normal distribution or whatever that might be, uh, PMML is not so good at that. Those sort of upstream uh, calculations. And PFA is a much more expressive, um, customizable and extensible uh, standard 
uh, that analytics vendors like me can write to and uh, and score against. That's that's really the difference. Ch- chaining together operations is really the idea. Okay, cool. So what you know, I, I brought up Chorus, um, and that's the that's the platform that you guys uh, mm-hmm. sell as part of Alpine Data. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a bit about about that platform. You already talked about kind of what it is from a collaboration standpoint. Um, I did see uh, you know just like a, an image of the stack. And how it integrates, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, with the Hadoop ecosystem. But talk to us about kind of the, the component tree within Chorus uh, and how that works together with uh, existing data sets, with um, you know, existing environments that customers may have. Yeah, right. So um, at its heart, it's a it's a web application, um, and so we are not a. I point that out to distinguish ourselves from, say, desktop applications where you're sort of bound by the, the power in your laptop or, uh, at best, uh, the power of, of the central server. Um, and we're a web application in the sense that we are not a big honking analytics server or a, um, a multi-node platform that performs the calculations itself. We sort of sit in the middle of those things. Um, the end user opens up a browser to connect to the Alpine platform. Um, uh, she then sort of strings together this list of operations to command the application to perform this sequence of analytics functions. Alpine then turns those operations into instructions that are relevant for the data uh, that she's interested in, in working with. So we turn around and we say, well, look, she picked this data set that's sitting in Hadoop and she wants to aggregate that by product ID. Um, well, oh, it's Hadoop. The most efficient way of doing that may simply be to do a MapReduce operation. Uh, or these days, we might say that uh, Spark is a better way to do that um, because we can write some Spark SQL, we can chain together operations more efficiently. And so think of Alpine then as this sort of intermediate layer between the data scientist, so we talk the language of the data science, we allow her to speak in mathematics and statistics and so on. Uh, and then we turn around and we translate that into the language of the underlying data platform. So to get vaguely technical for a second, we're a web application that offers up a, um, a front-end application um, uh, that, that, uh, that sits there in the browser. And then we communicate with data sources uh, such as Hadoop, um, Spark, uh, Hive, traditional relation, relational databases like Oracle, Teradata, Greenplum, Postgres, MySQL, Vertica, and so on. Um, and we have these agents, if you like, one per platform um, that can take the decomposed version of one of these analytics workflows and convert it into the appropriate language um, and um, uh, instruction set uh, for that underlying platform. And then we send that down to the platform in the case of, say, Spark. That'll be a a sequence of Spark operations that manipulate the data in place so we don't move the data back into Alpine. Um, Again, Alpine is relatively lightweight. Uh, And then we just send summaries of those results or the the aggregations that she was looking for uh, in summary form or the model that she created. We send those back up to the client, back up to the browser. And since we're, since we're on the subject of Spark, uh, you know, Brent and I kind of have our own perspectives on where uh, Hadoop and Spark are in the market and things like that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're hearing this kind of more and more. So what is, where are you seeing organizations, these, these businesses, these, uh, the, whether it's 
businesses were just simply organizations with a mission, right? You know, those that mm-hmm, aren't mm-hmm, for profit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, yeah. Where are you seeing them leveraging Spark to kind of maybe even, uh, you know, replace or augment Hadoop? Like, what are you straight, what are you seeing as far as that trend? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot to say about this, actually, because for, the first thing to say maybe is that I'm going to, again, focus on the, the Fortune 1000. I'm not going to focus too much on companies within a 40-mile radius of here in San Francisco. Um, so, you know, the sort of clients that uh, that we work with, uh, like Morgan Stanley and uh, VMware and government organizations um, like NASA and, and even not-for-profits like uh, Tipping Point, which is here in, in, in San Francisco, um, we see, first of all, that they are more and more interested in using uh, big data. They recognize that um, there is a trend towards these more flexible, more extensible, um, uh, lower cost uh, solutions, um, and obviously more scalable solutions like Hadoop. Um, and so I think, you know, starting around 2010, 2011, these Fortune 1000 companies started uh, um, uh, pushing towards uh, uh, Hadoop environments. Now, two things have happened since then. First of all, there's been a little bit of disillusionment with Hadoop. It turns out it's not so cheap if you have to factor in all the people that are required to get it up and running and sort of maintain it and understand it and uh, and all the people you have to hire to program against it, or of course the platforms like ours that you have to buy in order to use it. Um, or open source solutions you have to learn in order to, to, to make the most of it. Uh, so that's um, part of the disillusionment. I think also there's an understanding that, well, you know, Hadoop doesn't solve all of your problems. Um, it's very good at dealing with, for example, unstructured data. It's very good at dealing with sort of um, tasks for which you don't want to have to prescribe upfront what the schema is going to look like and dictate to end users uh, which data sets they can use, um, what permissions they have, and so on. Um, and uh, that's that's good for many things, chomping through log files being sort of the, the, the classic case. Um, but it isn't great for all things. And, you know, relational databases are still pretty good. Um, and um, in the world of relational databases, companies like Greenplum, and not just Greenplum, um, Vertica, and, and even, even still... Um, uh, the, the likes of Teradata uh, and Oracle, of course, have made innovations in making their databases scale. And those databases, above all, no matter how much innovation you think is around, they're just not going anywhere, right? There's still vast quantities of data sitting around in these relational databases, which can often augment the data that's sitting in Hadoop. So that's one um, thing that I've seen, is that as companies have raced to develop an analytic stack that they can deliver to their uh, their analysts, as the IT departments at the big banks and manufacturing organizations and media companies have wanted to build up this structure, they've realized that, well, we can't just spin up Hadoop and say, you know, here you are. You've got to provide a layer on top of it that makes it easier to use. That's sort of the Alpine thing, right? Um, but also, we need to provide easy access to the other data sources because data scientists are not just going to be satisfied with one. They're going to get their, they're very greedy. They're, they want to get their hands on all of the data. So that's one thing. Relational databases have not gone away. And, um, and they're important to integrate with and have sort of sit alongside the Hadoop world. I think the other disillusionment has been just around the complexity of Hadoop itself. And so, um, you know, dealing with security uh, and not forcing people to have to write MapReduce or even uh, Scala and Spark uh, uh, routines 
um, um, means that people are looking for slightly easier interfaces. We're really seeing um, uh, these SQL interfaces, in particular Hive, but others as well, um, become very common. And that introduces an interesting tension, even some roadblocks, because you know Hadoop was made to be flexible and extensible, programmable, scalable, um, and things like Hive, frankly, are not none of those things. Um, it, it can be very slow. Uh, it's it's not super easy to extend. It doesn't do all the machine learning stuff that people tend to associate with these big da data solutions. Um, but it makes IT happy. Um, it's it's useful for a broad array of users who are used to uh, used to using SQL, um, uh, and um, and you know it's getting better. So right now, I think what you have in the Hadoop world is a little bit of confusion and a little bit of a mishmash of technologies as IT starts to enforce security uh, and starts to enforce standards and starts gravitating towards things like uh, Hive and then security standards like Kerberos and so on. Uh, and then on the user side, you're seeing demand for a mix of uh, data sources and also a push towards uh, easy to use interfaces, but still a, an insistence on flexibility and extensibility and so on. So it's a bit of a mess, frankly. <laughs> and, and, and that's great for companies like Alpine, to be honest, because we can provide a sort of unifying layer above all of those things. I mean, I know this sounds a little bit salesy, but it's really true. And I'm sure it's true for our competitors as well. It's like, you know, it's such, it's so complicated. Do I use Hive? Do I use Python? Do I use Scala? Do I use SQL? Do I use this database? How do I get access to this? How do I get access to Hadoop? I mean, how do I even start? Uh, well, we can provide, you know, here's one-stop shopping for your data and then building out your analytics and then delivering that. Yeah, so Stephen, you you brought up kind of in that last sentence there, getting access to data. In your experience, what have uh, what, what have you seen has been the biggest challenge within organizations that have siloed data everywhere? Are people like kind of hugging their data saying, mine, 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 and not wanting to share? or with this adoption of, of data science teams and analytics within orgs that they're opening up the kind of coffers to everything. What, what, uh, what's been your experience there? Well, I, I think I see two conflicting impulses. One I've already spoken about, right? Which is that the, the constant IT need, which is serious. I'm not poking fun at IT. I mean, you see things, uh, uh, you, you see these data breaches and IT has a real job to do here. They have to be careful about the access that they grant. So that's a real need. Sometimes it's slow and lumbering, and honestly, I think that it fights against itself um, uh, where you have policies around who can see what data, but then you have uh, data sets sitting around on laptops getting lost on the server. I mean, it's, um, uh, I, I think sometimes uh, IT fails to see the, uh, the forest for the trees and focuses on um, you know, policies that allow them to say that they've um, uh, uh, got security covered without actually really addressing the big issues around sort of proliferation of data and uh, so on. Uh, and, you know, access to personally identifiable information, all those sorts of things. So, um, you know, th that's that's a tough area. Um, I, those guys have my sympathy. Um, um, but I, I think sometimes it's moving so slowly that it, it really just gets in the way of progress. Um, but then the conflicting impulse there is, I think, greater openness to the data scientists on behalf of these organizations. I think that, you know, the, the role of the chief analytics officer, 
um, or the chief data officer as a person who has the authority to go and find data and demand access to it uh, and then to create value from it is a very useful function in, in the modern organization. So I think in some ways, uh, uh, and I've heard people, I've heard um, these, these analytics officers say this, that the, the role of the, the chief analytics officer or the chief data officer is actually to fight for data. It's not about um, developing complex software or buying uh, innovative solutions. It is those things, but it is above all getting access to data um, because the rest of it is, um, uh, is, is easy to automate, but getting the data is a very human process. And where do you see most of the initiatives coming out of? Um, are they coming out of the, the technology of the CIO, the, the, the chief data officer, or are you seeing it coming from outside of the traditional, what you'd think of technology, like the chief marketing officer or even HR or the executive team, like the CEO? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that, well, it's tempting to say both. I think that, um, you're seeing different types of initiatives. I think you're seeing coming out of these centralized organizations, whether that's IT or the, the sort of the core analytics group, um, you're seeing a lot of technical initiatives around bringing data together, providing access through um, open source tools, uh, through platforms like Alpine, um, and going after large projects, you know, the banks going after anti-money laundering um, uh, fraud detection um, and on the sort of more positive side, um, sort of more, more revenue generating side, uh, things like, um, you, know, you know, just offering a better service to clients in the terms of better recommendations and so on. Um, you're seeing these big projects that drive the bottom line or uh, are very important from a security point of view being driven from these central organizations. But at the same time, you see the, the, the sales teams and the marketing teams um, uh, demanding access to uh, data and to the data scientists so that they, um, you know, they're, they're learning about the power of advanced analytics and, and big data uh, to help them uh, drive new business and learn more about the customer and so on. And so they're often driving these initiatives as well. Um, and again, that's where IT needs to not get in the way of those things. You know, you see these projects can often just run aground on the shoals of uh, security and data access um, and, and just getting access to data scientists themselves um, because there are limited resources and because IT is still trying to get this infrastructure in place. And so when you, when you look at like how people are consuming it, like you said, both, it kind of almost doesn't matter where the initiative comes from. Mm. Um, but from an Alpine data perspective, um, are, are a lot of these projects where people are starting to kind of get their hands around it and even operationalize their analytics practice, do they focus on one key product and then scale the scale your integration from there? Or do they have to find three or four or seven projects and kind of combine them together to to justify an initiative like this inside the organization? Yes, I think, um, you know, just reflecting a little bit more on the previous question, I was going to say that, yes, while it is sort of both, I, I do see organizations attempting to centralize this, right? So you have this sort of matrixed operation of the analytics service provider in the heart of the organization, and they are spearheading these larger centralized initiatives, as well as responding to these uh, departmental initiatives as well. So I think that's worth saying that, it, um, and I think that model works pretty well. 
Um, so you have data scientists who might have areas of expertise within the organization, but they're largely sort of centralized and then sort of on loan to this analytic service provider model. Um, and so, yes, the, the sort of the, the number of these projects, I, I think certainly most of what we've seen is that larger organizations will not just focus on one. They will have maybe a small number of large needle moving projects, but they will also be attempting to justify their existence uh, by having uh, a larger number of departmental projects. And I think part of the reason for that um, is that, you know, frankly, data science projects often, like a lot of science projects, often don't go anywhere, right? You have hypotheses and then you don't have the data, or it turns out your hypothesis is wrong, uh, or it's too difficult to tease out the signal from the noise. And so I think it's natural and okay for data science projects to fail um, or not to yield results, or to yield results that are contrary to what you expected. Um, and that means then that you need to spin these things up quickly, and you need to spin up a lot of them, and uh, you need to move through them uh, move through them as fast as possible. Yeah, and, and we, if we look at your integrations, right, just pulling off your site, when you see things like, uh, you know, wh whether the data is on or off-prem with something like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, whether it's in, you know, being used inside Cloud Foundry in some form or fashion, and then, mm -hmm. you know, you look at MapReduce environments, you know, the Hadoops of the world, as well as Sparks and Oracles and Teradatas and Postgre and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> You've named all these integrations, which are probably little projects, either maybe even somebody's specific data environment for their team. And now we've got cross-functional teams and an entire organization mm. trying mm. To, to leverage all of that, right? So the depth of the integrations by itself shows the, the breadth of your kind of impact into uh, an, an organization. I mean, Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that aspect of it because, you know, when I was back doing CRM software, I remember, you know, back when I started in Silicon Valley in sort of the late 90s, um, golly, 20 years ago, my goodness. Um, <laughs> people were talking about, you know, the, the single customer repository and this idea that we would use Oracle or SQL Server or whatever the, the database of the, the month was uh, to centralize all of our customer data in a single place and have that centralized data warehouse. Well, you know, it didn't really work. There are data warehouses, but there are still tons and tons of data marts. There's often not a single data warehouse. Um, these things are often departmental or even more fine-grained. So that that just hasn't... Um, turned out as, as I think we might have expected, or maybe as exactly as we expected. And so you do have all these different data sources, and I think that's totally okay. Uh, you need to allow people to create centers of data within, um, within their own work, uh, within their groups, within their teams, within their departments, within their divisions, um, but then make it easy to knit those together. Um, that, that, to me, is what the solution should be. And Hadoop actually helps you with that, by making it easy to ingest data uh, without worrying too much about uh, transforming it initially, the whole um, ELT approach. Um, uh, but it also means that you do need, um, and here comes the cell, right? But it is true, you do need software on top of that uh, that provides sort of easier access and the ability to do that knitting as, as easy as possible. Um, but yeah, the, I, I don't see a problem with a proliferation of data sources, frankly. IT, of course, won't agree with me on this, and it is their job to make sure that proliferation doesn't get too crazy. Um, but, you know, if you have good policies around this stuff, um, if, you, um, if you use the right technologies, uh, and if you have sort of an overarching governance layer, um, then I think you should encourage people to collect and connect to their data. 
And so uh, as you talk about kind of like that, you, you mentioned, right, you have to have something and it's a little different than somebody else's. You, you're mentioning kind of your differentiation. I mean, this landscape of kind of making data simpler is obviously pretty popular right now. And, you know, from an investment perspective and things like that, how are you how are you showing your differentiation against maybe whatever else might be in the industry? Or do you feel like you have no competitors? um fortunately we have competitors um so that keeps us on our toes which is great and um i think the way that we differentiate ourselves is uh you know i I still think a a lot of our competitors undervalue the importance of the collaboration aspect i mean at this point and i'll give alpine a little bit of credit for this i think almost all analytics vendors will at least pay lip service to the uh, to the idea of collaboration and the ability to to share things in particular i think is becoming um, uh, easier and it's also great to see more and more uh, people paying attention to um, uh, that ability to connect between data scientists. So that so that's great, um, but still I think that you know that needs to be at all layers um, uh, of the of the stack and the ability to share and collaborate and and manage needs to be true of the data of the analytics of the analytics output and so on. So I think that's an area where we still continue to to differentiate. I think that um, on the scalability front, um, we were early uh, adopters of Spark. Uh, we're certainly not the only ones anymore. I think we certainly differentiate ourselves there from the traditional vendors when it comes to embracing big data solutions and Spark. Um, these days, I think probably the two key, uh, two or three key things that we have to um, uh, that we've that we focused on uh, that we have to uh, promote as differentiators above and beyond the collaboration and the scale, is uh, first of all, our extensibility. Um, The ability to say, well, we've got this very easy to use um, uh, visual layer, this uh, easy ability to uh, develop analytics uh, with uh, all constituents from the analytics team. Um, But what if we've got our own custom algorithms? What if we want to get deeper? What if we want to do things in Spark that aren't available out of the box? Um, So we have made it very easy to extend our platform so that you can add new capabilities, your own custom transformations, custom models, custom connectors to your own proprietary data sources and so on. And uh, I don't think that by itself would make us unique. Um, it, It may be rare amongst those vendors who are aiming at sort of the, the citizen data scientists to also have this extensibility layer. But I think what does make it unique is that we've integrated that very closely within the collaborative aspects and also within um, some of our early innovations around things like Spark auto-tuning. So, you know, just to go off on a quick tangent here, um, Spark is um, is pretty complex to deal with, um, you know, is, as if Hadoop itself um, um, it wasn't already complicated. Spark as a layer above that um, requires a lot of tuning uh, because you're now dealing with memory, and that can that can go wrong, uh, and that can be difficult to manage. And so we've we've created technology that allows us to take an algorithm and take a data set that the algorithm is about to operate on and compute what's the optimal settings for Spark in order to to execute that. Um, so. Uh, that's an innovation by itself. Um, but what we've done is we've said, well, look, we've built this extensibility layer. Any programmer who is writing their own custom SQL or custom Python or uh, custom Spark code um, should be able to take advantage of all of those other aspects of the Alpine platform, including uh, Spark auto-tuning and including the collaboration. So that's definitely a differentiator for us. 
the model up stuff, so the ability to, at the push of a button, essentially push out your visual and code-based workflows into operational environment is, is definitely a differentiator for us. I think everybody's scrambling to do this. I think those organizations that don't have a deep, a deep understanding of the practice of data science can often um, uh, underestimate how complex that task is. Uh, and then I think the, the third one would be making sure that we don't lose sight of the, um, the world of, of Python and R and making sure that those, wh while you know, our heart has always been with the citizen data scientists, we don't want to ignore those people who end up writing a lot of code, but then want to do it in a way that can be leveraged by the citizen data scientists. So making sure that we integrate well with um, other uh, languages like Python and, and, and R is, 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 is important to us as well. Well, Stephen, it's exciting to hear that you guys are doing very much for the for the big data and analytics industry what the music industry did for T Pain and Britney Spears. Make them sound better. Yeah. <laughs> you stole it. You stole my second joke of the day. Thanks a lot, Brent. <laughs> Excuse me. So you talked about uh, you got some great customers, VMware, Bosch, Johnson and Johnson, uh, Toyota. You talked a lot about predictive modeling for for sales forecasting. Um, what are some of the other use cases that you're seeing out there outside of just kind of traditional predictive sales uh, modeling? Yeah, I mean, of course, um, th there's that sales modeling that you just mentioned. Uh, we see in the digital world, you know, long been around now since uh, since the early days at, at say Google and so on, uh, the ability to fine tune um, the the presentation of advertisements to uh, to end users, we work with Havas, a big digital media agency in Europe, one of the biggest there, uh, to help them fine tune uh, the way that content is delivered to um, uh, to consumers, uh, and so optimizing that experience so uh, you don't get just shown useless banner ads on Facebook uh, is something that they're really focused on, uh, and of course they're not alone in that. Um, um, I think um, certainly security. I mentioned anti-money laundering, fraud detection, so on, um, is, is, is a big focus. Uh, we're see certainly seeing, uh, certainly when Alpine got going, uh, we were seeing relatively few applications in the healthcare sphere, I think because the data there was just a big mess. Um, and I think uh, maybe with the advent of the Affordable Care Act and maybe just with just progress in the healthcare industry, now data is more accessible and a little bit more structured. And so we see a lot of innovation and a lot of use of data science in, in the healthcare uh, world as well, um, uh, you know, pre preventing patient readmissions, um, uh, optimizing trials, uh, drug trials and so on, uh, tons of applications there. One of my favorite ones, though, I, I earlier mentioned, because just because I've been working on it recently, and it's it's part of the sort of the pro bono work that we do at Alpine. I'm working with an organization called uh, Tipping Point uh, here in San Francisco. Um, uh, they're a not-for-profit um, that looks at uh, 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 homelessness and, and poverty uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, they have a particular focus right now, uh, or a particular project, rather, uh, uh, working with uh, the San Francisco government around financial justice. So, you know, when people get parking tickets or uh, other types of um, uh, punitive ticketing, uh, they can have a greater uh, disproportionate impact on people of lower income. So we've been looking at data from SFMTA, from Muni, um, about parking tickets to figure out um, to what extent it is clear that has a disproportionate impact on people of lower income because, you know, the tickets are all the same for everybody. Uh, so that's just logically true. But to what extent is that true? And um, we're actually finding 
interesting things about how debt can pile up on tickets. And so the effective cost of a ticket um, is actually higher for, for lower income people, even before you take into account the fact that they have lower incomes. Uh, in, in other words, crudely put, um, uh, lower income people actually get more expensive tickets uh, for the same um, uh, infractions. Um, and we're just starting to quantify uh, how big that impact is on lower income families uh, so that we can help uh, Tipping Point and, and uh, Muni make a case to the government that maybe there are some policy changes to make there. And that's all done with, um, you know, real analytics and, and, and fairly large quantities of data that we're getting from the government that we're joining together with geographic data, um, with uh, socioeconomic data and so on. It's a really fun project. It sounds cool. It's uh, it's nice to hear companies doing some pro bono work. That's really I haven't uh, I don't know that we've heard a story of uh, people doing uh, you know altruistic things with with their their te- their technology platform. You know, there's there's probably more of it than you imagine. You know, techies uh, get a bad rap in in San Francisco, and I think sometimes uh, with reason. Um, we have a huge impact on the on the culture and the uh, and the fabric of the society here. And that's, um, that's something that we constantly need to be looking out for and make sure that, um, it's fair for everybody. But I think it also needs to be said that I, uh, you know, tech companies are filled with intelligent, well-meaning people and they understand the impact that they have and they want to do good things. And so, uh, I suspect it's more common than people think. Yeah. I just really, I would love to hear more stories about it. So that'd be great. Um, so uh, you know, this is about that time. You've got really critical things going on in your life, and uh, mm-hmm. your time mm-hmm. is extremely valuable. I can predict that we need to finish up here pretty soon. Um, and so, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things before we get out of here, your CEO has a really cool quote. We loved it, uh, which is that, like, you know, regarding AI and the future of AI, he said that uh, if identifying the next uh, nearest Korean barbecue and driving me there is the future of all AI promises, um, that's a damn shame. Um, mm, so I love, mm. a, I love a quote with the word damn in it. So does Brent. Um, but you know, the, yeah, obviously you guys have some opinions around the value of artificial intelligence and where modeling is headed to with deep learning and AI. So, um, is that really kind of part of your, uh, the passion of Alpine data as well as is valuable artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's right. It's, um, you know, mathematics has long been used to make sense out of data. Um, almost Everybody who works in business now has at some point interacted with a reporting solution or with Excel. And I don't mean just look to the reports, but actually built these reports themselves. So, you know, in the last 20 years, through innovations in, in web technologies and in SQL um, and in enterprise applications, we've granted access to historical data for almost anybody in an organization, uh, from the office manager to the CEO. And, uh, and that's great. And now what we're saying is, well, look, if, if aggregate, simple sort of arithme- uh, arithmetical summaries of historical data can be that useful, now let's take more complex statistics and linear algebra and apply that uh, and also make that accessible to precisely the same people. And just think of the power of that to be able to not just look in, into history and understand what happened, but look into the future and figure out what's going to happen. Um, so I, I think that's that's really powerful, and um, we're just very happy to have uh, played a small part in making that as accessible as possible. Awesome. Well, again, we're we're trying to wrap this up for you and put you into that uh, critical meeting. Is there anything we forgot to ask you about that you really just want to get across the table um, that you know Brent and I just missed upon? Um, I think maybe it's it's less something that you haven't said, but more just a summary in some ways of the things we've discussed, which is. 
you know, this stuff is hard. The, the, the math is reasonably hard. Getting it to work at scale is hard. The underlying technology is hard. Uh, and of course, everybody uh, is 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 doing their damnedest to. I'll give you another damn. Uh, is doing their damnedest to make it to make it easy. But I think on the other side, end users, business users, people in government need to be demanding more of their data and demanding more of uh, the IT department and saying, look, this this stuff should be easy and it should be available now, and um, and it should also be safe and it should be. Um, um, uh, it should be easy to use, but also done in a way that is ethically responsible. Uh, so let's drive towards that as quickly as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, let's not let the technology get in the way. Awesome. Uh, and is Alpine Data presenting at any major conferences coming up here in the next, you know, two, three months that you know of? Where well, can... stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. And we'll, uh, we'll yeah. let you know. Maybe stay tuned really soon here. Uh, yeah. So we can find uh, your company, Alpine Data Labs, on Twitter at Alpine Data Labs. What about you, Stephen? Uh, or, or where are you socially? Whether it's Twitter, GitHub, whatever, or are you? Uh, you can find. <laughs> that's actually really embarrassing. I just deleted my Twitter account um, because uh, yeah. So if you can remove this part from the interview, because I should have a good answer for this, but I don't. Awesome. Well, uh, well <laughs> that's we'll... a really lame way to end this podcast. <laughs> it's not. It's all good. Well, um, you know, as we as we look forward, the other thing we'd love to hear from people is an educational opportunity. What are you reading, even if it's work related or not work related, as far as books? And again, if you say I don't read books, we're cool with that too. We've had that answer before. You know, funny you should ask. I'm reading um, How, um, Howard's End by Ian Forster. Um, it's a novel that I read when I was a teenager. I don't think I really appreciated it, and so I'm, I'm reading it again. And, of course, the famous maxim at the beginning of Howard's End is only connect. And the whole subject of the book is about how we should connect across, uh, across social classes uh, and across uh, genders and across countries and so on. And so I think that's a pretty good message for today as well because that's really what our software is trying to do. Great. Thank you so much. And so, uh, you know, again, Stephen, on behalf of uh, the Hot Isle, uh, we appreciate you being with us. For our, for our fans and listeners, all seven of you, continue to send us content, continue to, you know, ask us for subjects, finding guests that are awesome and bring, you know, a great perspective on the industry. Uh, we really appreciate everything you do for us. And uh, don't be afraid to get social with us. Uh, you know, recreate your tw Twitter accounts, whatever you need, get at us. Um, so, again, on behalf of the Hot Isle, I'm Brian Carpenter. And with me... Brett Piatti. And Stephen, can't thank you enough for being here today. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian.